Well, hello, my name is Matt. I'm one of the pastors here at Roswell, and it's great to have you with us today. We are launching a new series. Uh, it's a series on catechism. It's called Catechism. Yes. Knowing and living the truth, uh, which is honestly exactly what we're longing and hoping to do together through this coming year. Uh, not simply memorizing theological ideas, but the, the intaking, the, the knowing the truth of the things of God together in a way that not just knowing, but also becomes the living out of those very realities and to do so together. So each week, here's what's going to happen. We're going to tackle one of the question and answers from the pulpit. And we're going to be processing through that from the scriptures. And sometimes we may stretch out one question or one answer to, for a couple of weeks, or sometimes we may condense a couple of the questions. But overall, we should be doing about one per week. And then after that Sunday, for the rest of the week, we together are going to get to spend the week memorizing and learning the reality of that question and that answer on our own, in our community groups, with our families. And then what happens then is on Sunday morning, as we gather back together each week to begin to worship again, we're going to take that question and answer, and we're going to recite it to one another uh, in the service. And then we're going to be taking all the themes of the worship and the reading, and we're going to be teaming them all around that truth that we've been memorizing and thinking about and meditating on all week long, so that we, in a sense, kind of bookend the week thinking all about what God has been showing us, teaching us, and helping us to learn. So, let us begin with week one. Week one, question one. So I'm going to ask the question, and together we're all going to read the answer together. Ready? What is our only hope in life and death? That we are not our own, but belong body and soul, both in life and death, to God and to our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. We live in a world of, of hype and, and media manipulation, a world where uh, terrorism and those, their threats and the reality of a stock market crash or shift is around any corner, and we know it. Today, there are a few things that are certain, except that, of course, the very faithful death and taxes, those have not changed. And so we place everything on a sliding gray scale of, of doubt. And you can feel it in the air. Some of you can hear it around the water coolers at your office, though they probably don't have water coolers at offices anymore. And of course, we can hear it from the blaring newsrooms. There's a certain winking sarcasm and a, a skeptical skepticism that, that, is, that is just rampant in our land. As a culture, we are only sure one thing. We are only sure of one thing these days, and that is that we should never be sure of much. And so statements of confidence are often met with skepticism, and stories of trouble are met with a resigned expectancy. Of course they did. Of course that happened. Yes. And yet, question one and answer one, stand firmly in declaration that there is yet hope. There is yet reason to cut through the shallow cynicism of our world to the core of everything that matters. As Christians, we need to be honest about the reality of our proclamation of our only hope. We need to be honest that this is our only comfort precisely because a lot of what goes on in the world is indeed rotten, unfair, and not what it seems to be. We need this, on, not on, this only because all of the other potential comforts in life will frankly just turn out to be quite fragile. Every day, 
and you know this, every day people discover that their trusted friend has betrayed them or that a beloved spouse has had an affair or is leaving, that a beloved child has lied or stolen or has left home for good or maybe has died. Every day people discover that the once secure job that they had has been downsized or that the solid investment of their life savings has evaporated in the midst of a morning trading day, that the medical science can't reverse your particular disease, and that someone you once respected has let you down. These things happen, and they happen with frightening regularity to us and, as you know, around us. As Christians, we don't confess Jesus as our only hope. We do so because honesty, because Honesty tells us that there is nothing else in life to be certain of. That's why a lot of people honestly struggle with cynicism and with resignation. It's because they're paying attention to how life really is. So this morning, let us look together at what our only hope is, what uncertainty looks like in the midst of fear and death. So let's do this. Why don't you stand with me? We're going to read the scriptures and continue on. Romans chapter 14. For none of us lives to himself and none of us dies to himself. For if we live, we live to the Lord. And if we die, we die to the Lord. So then, whether we live or whether we die... We are the Lord's. Now, 1 Corinthians 6. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. Go ahead and have a seat. The words of 1 Corinthians 6, which are echoed in the catechism, that you are not your own is one of the things we're going to look at right away. But before we, we look at the reality of we are not your own, what this could say is actually you are not your own anymore. In fact, it's important and honest to come to the reality of the implications that us not being our own is actually that we were at one time our own. We used to be our own. And what did it look like for us to be our own? Well, Paul in Ephesians chapter 2 helps us understand what that looked like pretty clearly when he says, as for you, while you were dead in your transgressions and sins in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient, all of us also lived among them at one time gratifying the cravings of our flesh and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature deserving of wrath. So Paul says we were dead. We were, we were stuck following the rulers of this world, following the way of the world, slaves to gratifying our desires and our sinful fleshly longings, and fundamentally living under the certainty of divine condemnation, whether we acknowledged it or not, whether we looked for it or not, without God and without hope in this world. 
You see, when we belong to ourselves, everyone and everything exists for us, for our pleasure, for our purposes, for our selfish, self-satisfying use. Even our good deeds at the end of the day are ultimately done in service to self. Shame and guilt, of course, in a reality when we just belong to ourselves, shame and guilt have no remedy. Only the temporary relief that comes every once in a while from a fleeting achievement or from a short-lived boast or maybe a momentary pleasure. But it does not last. That's what it looks like for us to be our own. It's fundamentally to be on our own. And we used to be on our own, but no longer. In Ephesians 2, Paul goes on to talk about the gospel. He says, but God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. We have been saved. We have been saved from what used to be true, from us being our own, and we were saved into two things and for two things. We were saved to have hope that we are not our own, one, and two, that we belong to God. It's two sides of one coin, that we are not our own and that we belong to God. That is our hope. And so let us look at those two things. We are not our own. Or said another way, we don't belong to ourselves. We read Romans 14 earlier and it said, for none of us lives to himself and none of us dies to himself. The reality of our salvation is that our trajectory has been altered. We're no longer having everything pointing in towards us. The trajectory has shifted. We no longer live to ourselves or die to ourselves. Instead, Paul continues, for if we live, we live to the Lord. And if we die, now we die to the Lord. The trajectory of all things has been shifted fundamentally from everything turning in towards us, everything pointing at us to be to the Lord. In 1 Corinthians 6, of course, he says it far more plainly when he says, um, you are not your own. Well, it's hard to miss. That means you are not your own. Not a lot of interpretation necessary there. Actually, one commentator says, he says, we have to be honest about how startling and countercultural many contemporary people find the idea that there is actual comfort, hope to be found in the idea that you are not your own. That should surprise us. Because to many people these days, not being in charge of our own destiny, not being able to make up our own rules as we go along, would sound like distastefully bad news. And honestly, it should be a little unsettling to us. The truth, the fundamental reality that you are not your own, that I am not my own, that we are not our own, if we really think about it, It should at least assault some of our sense of independence and self-determination. And honestly, if it doesn't at all, you're probably not thinking it through all the way. And so, one of the things I get to do is help you. So let me see if I can help you a little bit, capture some of the full weight of the implications of what Paul says when he says, you are not your own. You are not your own. What it means is that, we'll just say for me, Regardless of the name on my bank account or how much cash I have in my wallet, it's not my money. Regardless of what the deed to my house says, it's not my home. This is not my body. Those are not my children. 
This is not my health. It's not my purpose, and it's not my retirement. It's not even my time. This is not my career. It's not my skills and my talents. It's not my race or my ethnicity. It's not my future. It's not my reputation. It's not my marriage. It's not my plans. It's not my pleasures or power. It's not my timetable. It's not my church. It's not my goals. It's not my pace of change, either for me or for you. It's not my gender. It's not my position. It's not my safety and security. It's not my ambitions. It's not my wisdom and will. It's not my family. And friends, it's not even my candidate or my political party. It's not my life. Fundamentally, it is not my anything anymore. It's not your anything anymore. I realize that when we talk about stewardship or when we're talking about serving or talents and stuff, we always talk about, hey, you have to steward this. You know, this is like you have some of this and you give it away. And it's actually far more offensive than that. It's all not yours. All of what you are is not yours anymore. Imagine, imagine what your life and relationships and work would look like if that reality actually was all the way down at the center core of what you believed was true, that you are not your own. And here's a, here's a thought exercise. I, that's, a, that's a Heimlerism. I actually don't know what a thought exercise is. I just wanted to say it. But let, let's just think, think with me for a moment and see if we can help get this a little deeper in. What can you do with the things that you own? Sorry, participation. What can you do with the things that you own? Whatever I want. So the, the shirt you came, let's just use the shirt you're wearing right now or dress. Uh, the, the shirt that you're wearing today, you can do whatever you want with it, right? Like you can give it away. You can try to sell it. Uh, you can turn it into rags. You can throw it away. It's yours, right? So you get to do whatever you want with it. All right. Who decides what you get to do? Uh, use brick. Brick, who decides what you get to do with the things that belong to you? And don't say Karen. <laughs> you do. So, something like asking really obvious questions where you're like, Matt, got it. But if you are not your own, well, then someone else gets to decide what happens with all of those things. I'm relatively convinced that it's not the complicated things that tend to make our lives challenging, that make us trusting God difficult. It's actually the very, very simple things. Like, you don't belong to you anymore, and he has total claim over all of you. And if that doesn't unsettle you a little bit, if that doesn't make you go, hold on. Like, this is the land of opportunity, a.k.a. my opportunity. My. I mean, right? Personal property. The Bible says no. And what's great is that it gives lots of examples of how God does this to other people. So you get to watch them. And God does things like he meets Abraham and says, Abram, 
I'm going to send, I want you to pick up all your stuff and your family, and I want you to go to a place that you don't know, that you've never been, and what God's telling him is, Abram, this is not your family, and this is not your country. And then about 35 years later, he, he looks at Abraham now and says, I want you to take your son, and I want you to walk a few miles, and I want you to go up this mountain, and I want you to sacrifice him to me. And what he's telling him is, Abraham, this is not your son. He does it with Mary, of course, and Steve brought this up a couple weeks ago. Angel comes to Mary and says, Mary, you're, you're going to be pregnant through the Holy Spirit. You're going to give birth to the Messiah. And what God's telling her is that this is not your body. And future forward, this is not your reputation because this will follow. With Paul, he, in real kindness, sends someone else to tell him the good news. When he says um, that Paul, he, he, is chosen, he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. That sounds kind of nice. For I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. God's saying is, Paul, you're not your own. It's not your comfort. It's not your plans. It's not even your safety or security. You are not your own. This came home a little bit more surprisingly about a year ago. In the span of about three days, um, I found myself driving my son to the recruiter's office with his bag and dropping him off and entrusting him to the watch care and kindness of the United States Army. Three days later, that was a Wednesday, three days later, I'm walking my daughter Haley down the aisle and giving her away in marriage. In a very concentrated time, it became very clear to me, these are not mine anymore. And you know what struck me? Is that they weren't mine to begin with. And, I, and we, I know this because there's nothing more precious than your kids, right? But they're not yours. Fundamentally, Nathan and Haley belong to God, body and soul, in life and death, to God and to their Savior, Jesus Christ. That is the reality. They are not their own, and they're not mine. You understand the breadth of this? Like, yeah, it's all his. So my question to you is, over what aspects or arena in your life are you stamping mine? Yeah, yeah, God, you can totally have this, but, but this is mine. Over what aspect of your body are you saying, no, no, this is mine? Of your time, are you saying, no, no, this is mine? Dallas Willard has a great quote in Renovation of the Heart. He says, we may allow joy to dissipate through looking back at our sins and failure or, or forward at what might happen to us or inward at our struggles with work, responsibilities, temptations, and deficiencies. But this means we have placed our hopes on the wrong thing, namely ourselves. And here's the good news. We do not have to do this. It is our option to look at the greatness and goodness of, what, of God and what he will do in our lives. The beauty of the declaration that you are not your own is in what follows, that you belong to God. If it's just that God's in charge of your life, 
or that you're out of control, that should be frightening. If God is a tyrant, and we'll be walking through much more specifically what is God next week, then it should terrify us. But our only hope is that we are not our own. But the other side of the coin is that we belong to God. So what does it mean to belong to God? Well, 1 Corinthians 6 helps us again. After Paul says, you are not your own, he said, how do you know you're not your own? He said, well, for you were bought with a price. You were bought with a price. Now, in this country, we don't buy people anymore. Thank God. We buy stuff, and sometimes stuff owns us. But what does it mean to be bought with a price? What is this price? How were we bought? And here are the fundamental, simple realities of what God has done for us. God bought us back. This is, of course, according to the scriptures. When we had been sold as slaves in sin. How has he done so? What's the price? Well, he canceled the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. You must pay. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. How did God do this? Well, he paid the penalty of our death sentence by becoming a substitute on Calvary. He redeemed us by becoming the atoning sacrifice for our sins and, of course, thereby forgiving us all the trespasses through the blood of his son. He bought us at infinite cost to himself. I am convinced that we will never know or never stop learning to know the magnitude of the infinite cost of Christ on the cross on our behalf. Some of the beauty of heaven is going to be our realization of that magnitude, which will open our hearts to praise and worship and thanksgiving and joy. That is what he has done. And so now we belong to him. I was trying to understand the etymology of the word belong. It was more complicated than I thought, so it's not in the sermon. Um, but in the process, I ran into the English dictionary definition. And this is one of the definitions. There are several. It says, to belong is to be the property or possession of to be owned by, to be held by, to be in the hands of. That's what it means to belong. And so this morning, I find it my duty and joy to be able to tell you that, loved ones, you belong to God in Christ Jesus, that you are his prized possession, his very own, that you are held by him, that you are securely in the hands of God. Regardless of your past record or of your present performance, God has bought us at a price. And the second part of belonging is that he's brought us in. Romans 14.8 said, So then, whether we live or whether we die, we are the Lord's. Or... We belong to the Lord's. It's a present possessive. It's we are the Lord's, which ironically captures the second definition from the English dictionary, which is to belong is to be bound, sorry, is to be bound to by ties of affection. 
Man, I love that. To be, to be bound to someone by ties of affection, dependence, allegiance, affiliation, to be allied to, be associated with, be linked to. Now, some of us at times find ourselves linked to, associated with people we do not want to be associated with, linked to, affiliated with, right? People sometimes call themselves Christians and do and say things that would make anyone who knows Jesus Christ just wince and want to run away from that. So the object is the most important part, right? Affiliation to whom? Association to whom? Bonds bonded to whom? Uh, the, the, the biblical definition of what this kind of belonging is, is adoption. That's what the Bible calls adoption. It's being brought into God's glorious family as a son and as a daughter with all the privileges, all the honor, and all the security that that position affords as an heir of the king. That's what that belonging is. It's being adopted. It's being a son, a daughter. As I, as I was thinking through this section, I, I just kept having um, the, uh, the film, uh, 1998 version of the Les Miserables, Victor Hugo's book. I don't know if you guys have ever seen it. Liam Neeson, uh, Uma Thurman. Um, it's, a, it's a tremendous book, and obviously it's a, it's a great musical too. But, um, but in, there's, a, there's a scene. Now, if you guys know the story of Les Miserables, there's, uh, there's this man who's been redeemed by a priest. He, he buys, basically, he buys his, his redemption by sacrificing for him, and it changes this man Jean Valjean's life forever. And he becomes the mayor of this town, a successful business owner. And in the midst of owning his business and being a mayor of this town, there's a woman that works for him that ends up being cast out because of some bad management. And she has, she has a daughter that's being kept at a, at a village because it's not her daughter. And so she keeps and pays for her to remain there from another family. And in order to do so, now that she doesn't have a job, she ends up devolving into prostitution. Her name is Fontaine. And, and, and Fontaine finds herself arrested, and it's a false arrest, it's a bad arrest, um, and, uh, and, and Jean Valjean is called in, the mayor is called in to stand up to, this, to the villain, to, the, uh, to Javert, who is the, the cruel police uh, commissioner. And, and he stands up and, and basically demands her freedom. He is the Christ figure. Jean Valjean comes in and he takes her from this terrible situation. Um, but in the midst of it, we come to realize she's terribly, terribly ill from the life she's been living on the streets. And she's dying. And so he brings her in this scene to his home, and he begins to care for her. And, um, and, he talk, and she starts talking about her daughter. And, uh, and he says, we, we, will, we will bring her here. And then, and then he says, and here's the actual words. He says, um, he says, and when you're better, I will find work for you. And Fontaine replies this. And this is one of the most incredible lines in the whole movie. She says, but you don't understand. I'm a whore. And Cosette has no father. And as though those should be the last words, Jean Valjean just moves past them and says, oh, she has the Lord. He is her father. And then he turns towards her. He says, and you are his creation. In his eyes, you have never been anything but an innocent and beautiful woman. That's what belonging looks like. That's what being brought literally in that scene, brought in and kept here. He, he will go on to raise 
uh, Cosette as his own daughter, and she will receive all the benefits of his wealth and of his reputation. She belongs to Jean Valjean for the rest of her life, and he will give his life for her. So, loved ones, far better than anything Liam Neeson could ever picture on a screen. We have the Lord, and he is your father, and he has adopted you. No amount of rejection can undo his acceptance of you. You are now bound to God by ties of inextricable affection, of complete dependence, and a full allegiance to him. Because you belong to your father, you are allies with him. You are associated with all the splendor and majesty that are his. You are now irrevocably linked to all that he is and all that he has. My friends, your life belongs to God. Your death belongs to God. Your body belongs to God and your soul belongs to God. Belonging to God is only good news to those who know the poverty and hopelessness of what belonging to themselves really looks like. It's only good news to those who know and would say, but you don't understand, I'm a whore. It's only good news to those who say that. Belonging to God is only good news to those who have God as their only hope, not as their backup hope or their, well, if this doesn't work out for me or through me, then he'll be my hope. He's not good news in that case. So I ask you, is he good news to you? Is it good news to you that you belong to him? And now in light of the fact that you belong to him, is it good news to you that you are not your own anymore? Because my friends, I don't know that there's a more fundamental good news for us. And all the things that we're going to look at and learn and step into in the coming year, the truths about God and his church and his redemption and his work in Christ Jesus, they are grounded and founded and they remain solid only to the degree in which we're realizing that this is the true thing, that you are not your own. And that's good news. You belong to God. It's the best news. If you find yourself struggling... Like, I don't know. I, I'm only, I'm, I'm negotiating with God a little bit right now. Um, Brennan Manning in his book, Abba's Child, which is a phenomenal book, FYI, um, he, he, he tells a story, and in the story, he invites this particular woman to spend 30 days doing one very simple thing. And, um, I, and I've actually done this myself, not for 30 days, but it's kind of a regular thing. And that is, he invites her to just take your hands and to put them face up, sitting on a chair or sitting on your couch, and to just say, Abba or Father, I belong to you. Abba, I belong to you. And the reason he invites that is because those, those syllables fit perfectly in the rhythm of your breathing. And so literally every breath in and every breath out, you can be declaring the thing that we are longing to be more and more true about us. Understand to the degree in which this sinks all the way down to the bottom of your soul, to that degree you will be free and satisfied and looking to God to be your only hope 
in life and death. You are not your own. You belong to God. John Calvin celebrates this when he says, I think I have it on the screen. Oh, how much has that man profited who, having been taught that he is not his own, has taken away dominion and rule from his own reason that he may yield it to God. So loved ones, I'm going to ask you one more time. What is our only hope in life and death? That we are not our own, but belong body and soul in life and death to God, to our Savior, Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ lived a perfect life that was not his own. John 5 captures us this way when he says, I say to you, the son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the father doing. His life was not his own. And Jesus suffered his body and his soul unto death, dying with the declaration of belonging on his lips. In Luke 23, he says, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And it says, and having said this, he breathed his last. And he did this that you and I may belong. May belong to God, both body and soul, in life and in death. Will you pray with me? Father, there are many hopes clamoring for our affection There are deceptions telling us that if we will hold fast to them, that they will provide peace and life. So, Father, we repent, as we did earlier, for not allowing all the reality that you indeed have done all things for us and have made a place for us, that from that place we may find ourselves able to obey, delight, serve, sacrifice, give ourselves away to our world and our neighbor because you've done it all. There is nothing left to lose. And so, Father, will you show that to us? In the months to come, will you drive deeply into our souls the reality of our belonging to you as we look upon you, as we memorize and and learn the truths and live the truths of the reality of who you are and who we are in you? That is our prayer, and we ask this in Christ's name.